0: It was a Sunday evening in the summer of 2007 when a mother and daughter go to their local grocery store. As they shop, a man watches them. As they leave and drive home, this man follows them. The next morning was a rainy Monday, July 23rd. This same mother enters the bank and slips the teller a note. This note is alerting the teller her family is at home being held hostage and she needs to withdraw $15,000 to pay the ransom, and she also includes don't call police. The bank manager calls police at 9.21 a.m., but the woman leaves the bank with the money before police can arrive. By the time home invaders fled the scene, there is only one survivor and the house is engulfed in flames. This case does have a content warning on it, as it does involve children, sexual abuse, and distressing content. What happened between Sunday night and Monday morning lasted seven hours, ruined lives, destroyed a family, and sent shockwaves through the community. This is the case of the Pettit murders, seven hours of hell. Come hang out with me while I talk true crime. Welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. Before we get into this week's case, let's just hear a quick word from our friend over at Kelly's Coffee and Crime Chat. Take a coffee break with me, Kelly, at Kelly's Coffee and Crime Chat. Hear cases from all over the Midwest. And be sure to stay till the end of the episode to hear my recommendations on movies, TV shows, documentaries on my favorite channel, Investigation Discovery and other true crime podcasts on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and wherever you get your podcasts. There you have it. If you like coffee and you like crime chat, head on over to Kelly's Coffee and Crime Chat. Thank you, Kelly. Let's get into this week's case, which again, I will just remind everyone about the content warning. In 2007, the Pettit family was living in a big, beautiful home in Cheshire, Connecticut. William and Jennifer had worked very hard their entire lives for this beautiful life they had built. William was a doctor at his own medical practice and Jennifer, a nurse who worked at a private boarding school. They had two daughters, 11-year-old Michaela and 17-year-old Haley. Both their daughters were thriving. In fact, Haley was on her way to Dartmouth University and also wanted to become a doctor. Haley did amazing in both school and... And in sports. She also raised money for multiple sclerosis research as her mother, Jennifer, had been diagnosed with MS. 11-year-old Michaela, she was following in her sister's footsteps. Both girls were very well-rounded, smart, kind, and beautiful. July twenty second, two thousand seven was a Sunday. It was summertime in Connecticut, and the Pettit family were going about their lives. That night, eleven-year-old Michaela was going to cook the family Sunday dinner. In order to do so, they needed to go grocery shopping to get some ingredients. Michaela and her mother they arrive at the local grocery store around seven thirty p.m. Unbeknown to them. A man has been watching them since they got out of their car and he continued to watch them as they walked up and down the aisles of the store. This man is 26-year-old Joshua Kamizarjevsky. Joshua was at the grocery store that night waiting to be paid by a contractor he did some work for. When he spotted 11-year-old Michaela and became obsessed, he couldn't stop watching her. When Jennifer and Michaela left the shop, Joshua followed them to their car. Joshua then followed them back to their home. He didn't do anything at the time, but he remembered where they lived and he drove off. Jennifer and Michaela had no idea they had been followed. Joshua was no stranger to picking out houses to rob. He had been robbing homes since the age of 14. And in 2002, he was arrested for 18 home invasions. Joshua seemed to have an incredible memory for his actions. His lawyer said he could give exact details about all 18 robberies, including how many of each bill he got out of which wallet or purse and where he found them in every home. So he could say, oh, from this home I robbed X amount of years ago. I got this many $10 notes. I got this many $20 notes. Like he could remember... All of this stuff. Oh, I got this wallet out of this pair of pants that was in this bedroom. I got this money out of this purse that was in this bedroom that was this color. From years earlier, he could recall all of this. Joshua also told his lawyer something incredibly chilling. He said he liked to go room to room as the occupants slept and listen to them breathe. He enjoyed infringing on people's security. It was very clear that Joshua was a budding predator. The thought of anyone breaking into your home at night and standing beside you to listen to you breathe as you sleep is an incredibly chilling thought. And also I see that as predatorial behavior and it is for sure going to escalate. Now I did find a bit about Joshua's childhood and he himself grew up in the Cheshire area with parents who adopted him from a young age. He grew up in this affluent neighborhood. He was part of it. He lived on a 65 acre plot of land and it sounds like the family who adopted him was quite well off. But there was a dark side his childhood. When Joshua was a child, I believe around the age of six years old, it is believed he was sexually abused by an older boy who the family may have been fostering at the time. And as you can imagine, that is going to have a negative impact on Joshua's development. Then as Joshua grew older, he was then accused of sexually abusing a younger girl, which I believe was his adopted sister. So there was something very sinister going on in this home. In 1995, he was committed to a psychiatric hospital and it was clear he was suicidal and in really bad mental health shape. They recommended medication and therapy, which he was willing to try, but Joshua's adopted parents wouldn't allow him to get these things. Instead, they took him to a Christian center where he was essentially told to pray away those demons inside him. Eventually, he was excommunicated from this community for sneaking into his girlfriend's bedroom one night. In December of 2002, he was sentenced to nine years in prison and six years probation for 12 counts of burglary, which meant he shouldn't even have been out of prison in 2007 the night he followed the Pettits home. When he was sentenced, the judge said that he is a calculated cold-blooded predator, and yet five years later, he's free to roam the streets. Joshua was released on parole in April of 2007, just a couple months before the horrific crime he and a man named Stephen committed. The parole board was supposed to receive all the details about Joshua's case, and even though it's the law, they never received such paperwork. This means the parole board had no idea that the judge had called Joshua a calculated, cold-blooded predator. They did not know who they were dealing with. Once released on parole, Joshua met 42-year-old Stephen Hayes at a halfway house where they both attended AA meetings. Let's talk a little bit about Stephen Hayes. By 2007, Stephen Hayes had spent most of his life in prison for crimes such as burglary, drug possession, and forgery. His rap sheet was about 60 counts long by this time in his life. These two, Joshua and Stephen, they seemed to get along well and became friends. That July, Stephen was living with his mother and brother in a small one-bedroom apartment. Things were not going so well for him as I believe he was caught stealing from his mother and his mother had kicked him out. So he said his plan was to buy a bunch of drugs, rent a hotel room, and do them all in hopes that he dies. I believe he was using both crack cocaine and heroin. Stephen did not die though, and not knowing what to do once the drugs ran out, he went to an AA meeting where he met up with Joshua. He and Joshua started driving around trying to come up with ideas to make a lot of money very fast. And Joshua says, hey, I followed a woman home earlier tonight and she lives in a very nice home, which I bet has a lot of cash in it. Joshua is pitching the idea to rob the place. Stephen is on board with the idea and they come up with a plan. They wait until 3 a.m. to enter the home. Their plan was to tie up the residents, steal what they can, and leave, harming nobody. But what actually happens is very different. They do wait until 3 a.m. They look through the Pettit family's windows and notice Dr. William Pettit asleep on the couch. Joshua discovers an unlocked door in the basement, and when he goes through that door in the basement, he finds a baseball bat. He creeps up the stairs and beats Dr. William Pettit over the head with the bat, causing many large gashes and head wounds. He and Stephen then tie up William and place him in the basement. In a strange act of what appears to be kindness, Joshua gives William pillows as they place him on the floor of the basement and tie him to a pole. With the only pettit man now brutally beaten and bleeding to death in the basement, Joshua and Stephen make their way up to the bedrooms of 48-year-old Jennifer, 11-year-old Michaela, and 17-year-old Haley. They find Jennifer and Michaela in the master bedroom. Michaela must have fallen asleep watching television with her mother the night before. Stephen puts his hand over Jennifer's mouth and wakes her up holding a gun over her. Joshua wakes Michaela by placing his hand over her mouth and waking her up the same way as well. Once awake, they tell them to roll over on their stomachs and that's when they tie their hands and feet. The same thing is done to 17-year-old Haley in her bedroom. At this point, every family member is now tied up. And pillowcases were also placed over their heads. Stephen and Joshua seem to be taking their time. They grab some beers out of the family's refrigerator and they go room to room looking for money. I think what they were looking for was a safe filled with money or a large cash stash in the home, but they do not ever find that. Instead, they find a bank book that shows that the Pettits have a large sum of money in the bank. This is when they get the idea to take Jennifer to the bank in the morning and have her withdraw the money as soon as the bank opens. They then tell Jennifer this. They tell her that if she goes down to the bank and pulls out $15,000 and gives it to them, then her family will live. And Jennifer, she agrees to this without hesitation. Soon after this, Michaela is then moved to her own bedroom and tied to her bed by her wrists. Morning is rapidly approaching and the men start to wonder if either of Jennifer or William's work will be looking for them if they don't show up. So they go to ask them about it. Since Jennifer works at a private boarding school and it's summer, she's technically on vacation. But William, he needs to be doing rounds by 7 a.m. Because of this, they make William call his work and tell them he won't be in. His work has no idea he is being held hostage during this call. What a chilling image. Joshua had been spending time with Michaela while she was tied up. He had been conversing with her like everything was normal. Joshua was asking her about her summer holiday and school and all this normal stuff like they are friends. He was infatuated with this 11-year-old girl. When I heard bits of his police interview, Joshua only refers to Michaela as KK, and when the police ask him who he's talking about, he says that that's what the mother and sister refer to the youngest daughter as. And it sounds so disgusting hearing him call this 11-year-old girl by the name her family gave her as a nickname. Like he's part of the family or something. And he knows full well her name's Michaela. And he keeps referring to her as KK. And it is infuriating. I don't have an exact time, but before 9 a.m., Joshua moves his vehicle away from the Pettit home, and Stephen drives to the gas station in one of the Pettit's vehicle and buys $10 worth of gasoline in a gas can. This gasoline comes back later and is very significant. There were two cans of gasoline. He filled one up at the gas station, I believe, but there were two. After buying gasoline, Stephen returns back to the Pettits around 9 a.m. Jennifer is untied and Stephen gets into the passenger side seat of the Pettit vehicle and makes Jennifer drive to the bank. So she is now outside. She's in a car, but he's holding a gun on her the entire time. She can't get away. She can't ask for help. Joshua is left in the home with her family if she does anything the possibility of Joshua murdering her whole family is very high. Steven tells Jennifer that if she tells anyone in the bank what's happening, or if she tries anything, he will call Joshua and her whole family will be dead. So when Jennifer walks into the bank, she doesn't say anything. She discreetly writes the teller a note. The note says something along the lines of two men have taken her family hostage. The men, they've tied up her family and they're holding them at her home. They want $15,000. If they get this money, they will let her family family live. And they drove me here to get this money. So whatever she wrote, it, it, it had all this information in it. And I also believe she wrote on that note um, telling them not to contact police. But the manager called police as soon as she was given the note. She was like, whoa, we've got a hostage situation here. We've got a woman who is clearly in danger and she calls police while the teller is getting the money ready for Jennifer. Jennifer, she gets the money from the teller and she exits the bank as the manager is on the phone with police. While Stephen has forced Jennifer to go to the bank, Joshua this entire time is alone at the Pettit home with the family. This is when he sexually assaults 11-year-old Michaela. Police later discover pictures on Joshua's cell phone that give them an accurate timeline of the assault. Before the bank trip, he had been taking pictures of Michaela's legs and crotch area while she was fully clothed. When she was left alone and Stephen left for the bank with Jennifer, that's when the images on his phone got very graphic and horrific. I will not be going into detail about the rape that followed, but I can assure you he is a depraved man who raped a child and documented it on his cell phone so he could relive the moment. At this time in 2007, Joshua, he did have a girlfriend And she did look much younger than what she was. This girl's dad suspected Joshua of being a pedophile and even told him so. Apparently, one day Joshua called up his girlfriend's father and was hinting at possibly asking his daughter to marry him. To which the girl's father responded, no, because I think you're a career criminal and a pedophile. To which Joshua responded, I'm sorry you feel that way. Joshua's then girlfriend appeared in a documentary about this case and she said that he would often tie her up when they would have sex and that he was probably thinking about young girls when he did so with her. So even his girlfriend at the time and his girlfriend's father is like, yeah, we, yeah, definitely. He definitely did that. And the father's like, I definitely saw it coming. I told him he's a pedophile. This didn't come out of nowhere. This was ramping up. It was no surprise to some what Joshua did in the petted house that night, and yet law enforcement say there was nothing to say Joshua and Stephen were capable of such horrific crimes. When Stephen and Jennifer arrive back from the bank, this is when the plan to kill and sexually assault Jennifer comes about. Police think that since Joshua had raped Michaela, that he convinced Stephen to do the same to Jennifer. Stephen had agreed and strangled Jennifer to death and then sexually assaulted her. William could hear this horrific assault taking place above him, and when he yelled up to his wife, the man yelled back, It will all be over in a few minutes. William knew this meant they were going to kill them all, and through sheer adrenaline, he managed to get untied and get away through a basement door leading outside. He crawled into the neighbor's yard for help. He was badly beaten, and the neighbor didn't even know who he was. That's how badly beaten he was. As William escaped, Joshua realized what had happened and ran in to tell Stephen. Stephen, who was still sexually assaulting Jennifer's lifeless body. Joshua and Stephen say that they never intended to harm the family. But then somewhere along the way, this changed to let's burn the house down, but remove the family before we do it. Then this plan changed to rape, murder, and burn the family alive. Some people think that this plan changed predominantly after Joshua had sexually assaulted Michaela. And then when Stephen came home from the bank, that's when Joshua was like, hey, I did this. There's DNA everywhere. We got to do something about this. We're unsure exactly what was said, exactly how the plan went down, but that's what some people theorize. Since their DNA evidence was all over the home now, they decided they need to burn the house down. And since family members inside the home had been sexually assaulted by them, they thought that it would be best to cover their tracks by keeping the people inside the home to burn with it. Absolutely gruesome. William had just escaped and they knew that police were going to be called. What they didn't know is that police were already informed and police were already making moves. Unfortunately the moves they made were too slow. Michaela and Haley they were still alive at this point. They were tied up to their beds but they were still alive. It is believed that Stephen went around the house with gasoline and poured it over the girls and all over the home. Michaela and Haley would have been fully conscious and fully aware of what was going on as these monsters soaked them in gasoline as they were tied to their beds. After the gasoline was laid, a match was lit and because of all of the accelerant all over the house, it went up in flames in seconds. The two men then fled the scene in one of the Pettit's vehicles and upon fleeing, they collided with a police car who was going to the scene of the crime. The two men were arrested on the spot. I saw pictures of this collision and both front ends of the vehicles were completely smashed in. This was a, it looked like to be at a very high speed that they collided. Firefighters rushed to put out the fire, but it was too late to save Michaela and Haley as both had died from smoke inhalation. Haley had managed to free herself and was found outside her bedroom door in the hallway laying face down. Both girls had burns to their bodies and it is unclear whether or not they were alive when the burns occurred, but it is very possible. Michaela's autopsy proved that Joshua had raped her as his semen was found inside her. Her clothing also contained traces of bleach, which police think Joshua used to try to get rid of his DNA evidence. Dr. William Pettit escaped through the basement door and he was the only survivor. In an article I found published on Oprah.com, I read that Dr. William Pettit said this, quote, I went to sleep one night in a nice home with a loving family and basically awakened in the emergency room naked on a gurney with no clothes, no family, and no home. Everything was gone. The only people to blame for this vicious, horrific, evil act is Joshua and Stephen. But many people were asking the question, what happened to police that morning? Police were notified when Jennifer was at the bank. Why did it take them so long to respond to the call? From the time the manager of the bank called the police to the time the fire started was over 30 minutes. Why didn't police stop Stephen and Jennifer before they made it back to the Pettit family home? There was a lot of questions for the police about what went wrong and how did they not intervene before the fire started. But as far as I could find, the police never answered these questions despite Jennifer's sister and parents asking them for answers. I did manage to find somewhat of a timeline and it doesn't make sense there is so much more information needed to make sense of it I mean I understand that a SWAT team isn't on standby all the time but surely the police could have done something like stop Jennifer and Stephen when they were driving back to the Pettit family home they could have intervened saved Jennifer arrested Stephen and dealt with the one kidnapper in the home the bank manager called police at 9 a.m when Jennifer was just leaving the bank. Thomas Yuleman, who is Stephen Hayes' defense attorney, he claims police were at the Pettit home when Jennifer and Stephen returned from the bank. If not, then at least seconds to minutes later. Police didn't try to call a phone inside the Pettit family home. They didn't try to contact anyone inside the home. They didn't knock on the door. They didn't do anything. 9.56 a.m., the police log says that suspects were on the move, and one minute later, it's recorded that there is now a fire on the scene. If police were on the scene when Jennifer and Stephen returned back from the bank, then that would mean they were on site while she was murdered, while the two girls had gasoline poured over them, and while the fire was started. Jennifer's sister tells Investigate One that William said when he escaped out of the basement, he saw men on the property hiding behind trees, which was most likely the police securing the perimeter. Is it possible police didn't understand how urgent this situation was? If not, how could they not understand that after seeing a badly beaten William running for his life? In another documentary I watched on this case by Absolutely Criminal, it said that police arrived at 9.32 a.m. and a shift officer told them not to approach anyone. At that time, it is most likely that Jennifer was still alive. The gasoline may not have been poured over the girls and for sure by that time the fire was definitely not lit. That was 24 minutes before the fire broke out. You can see why Jennifer's family is after a lot of answers from police about what happened or what's going on with their protocol. Because it seems like police were on the scene when everyone was still alive. And by the time everything was sorted out, there was only one survivor. What happened? Let's talk about the trials now. First up was Stephen Hayes trial and that took place in September of 2010. Stephen's defense lawyer tried to convince the court that Joshua was the one who planned out and, and mastermind the home invasion that led to these horrific crimes. It was Joshua who followed Jennifer and Michaela home from the grocery store and it was Joshua's idea to go back there with Stephen and enter the home at 3 a.m. So you can see how this this is a it's a solid argument. It's a good argument because Joshua was the one who first carried out sexual assault. And it's almost seemed like he waited for Stephen to be gone to do that. Um, the prosecution, however, they did not agree with this. They believed that it was an equal partnership in this crime between Stephen and Joshua. They both had everything to do with it. Stephen, he did admit to strangling and raping Jennifer and also to pouring gasoline all over the home which according to forensics would include on the children while they were alive and tied up in their beds it is just unfucking fathomable that anyone could do that that is the most horrific thing i think i have heard on this podcast One month later, on October 5th, Stephen Hayes was found guilty on six counts of capital murder, three counts of murder, four counts of first degree kidnapping, one count of first degree sexual assault, one count of first degree burglary, and one count of second degree assault. From October to December, there was much debate about if Stephen should be sentenced to death or to life in prison. And by December 2nd, 2010, Stephen Hayes was sentenced to death. Stephen Hayes wanted to die. He had even tried to kill himself during the trial process. So he was actually pleased with this verdict. He couldn't die fast enough. And it seemed quite odd that the man was actively trying to kill himself and the prison he was held in had to keep an eye on him. So he didn't kill himself just so he could be sentenced to death by the state. It's, very, it's a very strange thing. To think about, isn't it? Like, I, th- I believe he had been squirreling away some kind of drug, and when he got, like, nine pills of this drug he was supposed to be taking daily, he ate them all at the same time because he wanted to overdose and die. And... You know, they couldn't let that happen. They brought him to hospital. They did everything they had to, to, to save his life. I believe he was even put in a special room with special clothing so he couldn't make a noose to hang himself. Like they went through all this effort to keep him from killing himself just to go through even more effort to sentence him to death. It's just such a odd thing to think about. So Joshua's trial. Let's talk about Joshua's trial. It started September 19th, 2011. His defense used the same one that didn't work for Stephen. And that was that it was all the other guy who masterminded everything. And again, this didn't work. One month later, Joshua was found guilty on all the same counts as Stephen, plus one first degree arson count. So Stephen had never been found guilty of this first degree arson count, which leads me to believe it was Joshua who lit the the match. December 9th, 2011, he was also recommended to be sentenced to death. So I think his official sentencing to death happened in 2012. But on this day in 2011, it was recommended that he be sentenced to death. And the the judge said this, quote, this is a terrible sentence, but it's one you wrote for yourself with deeds of unimaginable horror and savagery. Joshua, it seemed he had a lot to say for himself, and within his statement, he maintained the fact that he never intended for anyone to die. Uh, He also said that he will never find peace within, that his life will be a continuation of of the hurt that he caused. And the clock is now ticking, and I owe a debt, and I cannot repay it. Yeah, that is correct, sir. You can never give back what you took. Ever, It's just, ugh. Then he came out with this gem of a line, which for some reason rubbed me the wrong way because it seems like he's trying to be poetic when he should just be apologizing profusely. He also said that forgiveness was not his to have and that he needed to forgive his worst enemy, which was himself. Ugh. That is, ugh. I cringed so hard when I heard that. Like, what are you talking about, man? Just, are you... What is, no, 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 just all the no, all the no to that. For both Joshua and Steven's trial, they both were offered to take a plea deal in exchange for life in prison, but the prosecutor wanted death, so that's why both of the trials had to happen. The thing is, though, is that these trials cost around $7 million for both. Um, the images that were shown traumatized, jurors and people in the courtroom and the families had to be re-traumatized in these trials in order to get the these death sentences so these death sentences they were really really hard to get it cost a ton of money it traumatized a ton of people along the way but they did it just to get this death sentence i mean a, the plea deal was offered for them to just say hey say you did it uh you'll get life in prison and I'd imagine Joshua and Steven were like, yeah, okay. But then the prosecutor was like, no, we're going to do this. We want death. But before either of the men could be executed, the death sentence in their state was abolished. And in 2015, their death sentence were commuted to life sentences without the possibility of parole. That's right. That means all the trauma, all the time, all that money spent to get those death sentences that were abolished. They were commuted to life sentences. It, the whole trial thing. I could probably talk about the two trials uh, for at least an hour each. Maybe it, it. There's just so much happening at these trials. I. I really um, condensed it, uh, but it was the trials were, yeah, just a huge ordeal. After losing his wife and children in the horrific home invasion, William Pettit, he did not return to his medical career. In 2007, he started a foundation called the Pettit Family Foundation. This foundation raises money to assist victims of violence, support people with chronic illness, and also to support women in science. William Pettit, he did have a brief political career, but he seems to be more focusing on his foundation, which I have linked in my show notes, and they do accept donations. In 2012, William remarried a photographer he met at his foundation. The two have since had a son, and they named him William Pettit III. The petted home in Cheshire was torn down and turned into a beautiful memorial garden for Michaela, Haley, and Jennifer. You can look up the garden online and see just how gorgeous it is. There are many photos and videos available of this beautiful memorial. That concludes this week's episode. For weekly updates, please follow Hell No Underscore, a true crime podcast on TikTok and Instagram. If you would like to submit a spooky story for a chance to have it read on the upcoming Halloween special episode, please send it to hellnopodcasts at outlook.com. The story can be long, short, fact, fiction, paranormal, or not. If it's spooky, send it in. I want to read it. Spooky, scary, what flavor you got? Just let me know who to credit it to or if you want to remain anonymous. Thanks for listening and see you next week.